everyone, and welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven program that works to connect you with scientists to learn how science impacts all of us and our everyday lives. I'm Ashley Jansen, a third-year agricultural education and communication minor at the University of Florida, and I will be your hostess. You're currently listening to an episode from our series titled AI in Action, where we explore scientists' current research and how AI is changing the nature of science. AI development is said to be the fourth industrial revolution. The research explored in this series spans disciplines from data science to health, to cybersecurity, to agriculture, and more. AI is used with crops, cattle, pesticides, citrus, pigs, and more to increase efficiency and data accessibility. The following episode was made in partnership with the University of Florida Department of Agricultural Education and Communication, UF IFAS Dean of Research Office, and UF's AI Strategic Initiative. In the following interview, I spoke with Alex Bijak, a PhD student studying blue carbon storage capacity and its relation to restoration and management strategies, and with a history of water quality and system management. Alex tells us about her work with the EPA monitoring water quality, her seagrass research, and her experiences as a woman in STEM. Alex's current research focuses on blue carbon storage, specifically in different species of seagrass. She stresses the importance of seagrasses in our ecosystems and the role they play in the environment. Throughout this podcast, I hope you gain insight into Alex's research, the role of AI in research and the industry, and an overall sense of how scientists are moving forward to create new and unique solutions to address current global issues. Also, a disclaimer to our listeners, due to the pandemic, these interviews were recorded on Zoom. I apologize for any audio issues. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for coming on today. We're really happy to have you here for the Streaming Science Podcast. Today, I just really want to talk about your academic background, kind of, you know, give a little bit of information on your research, maybe talk about any challenges you've had in your research and being a woman in STEM. And we just want to learn about, you know, breakthroughs that you've had and kind of how everything's going for you in your PhD program. So thank you so much for joining us today. I guess I will just get us started. Can you tell me a little bit about your academic background and kind of your undergraduate degree as well as how far along you are in your graduate program right now? Uh, Sure. So um, my path from undergrad to where I am now is not very linear or direct. I was initially interested in conservation biology and zoology. And then I did a master's in environmental science. Um, And then after that, I worked at the Environmental Protection Agency for a few years. Um, And over that time, I realized I wanted to be back into research. Um, So I'm pursuing my PhD at UF in the soil and water sciences uh, department, working on seagrass ecology. That's awesome. How did you kind of get started with seagrass and what kind of jump-started your interest in that? So for me, it was 
rather random. I had a professor that I really liked who taught a wetlands ecology class uh, at my undergrad institution. And um, he happened to have funding for a research tech uh, where I learned about seagrass. I didn't even know what it was. I had never seen it before. Um, but I, the more I learned about this kind of plant, I just got really excited and passionate about all of the services that seagrass provides. So that's kind of what got me hooked. Well, that's awesome. So what did you kind of do in between your undergraduate degree and coming back to UF and working on your PhD? So when I was an undergrad, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Even in my fourth year, um, I just knew I really loved science and conservation. Um, so I stayed on as a research tech in this professor's lab who I really liked. And that gave me the opportunity to learn about seagrass population genetics and how seagrass populations are connected. And I was able to, I think, snorkel probably for the first time, learn how to dive during this time, and then got really excited about marine biology and seagrass ecology. I was able to stick around for a master's working on seagrass population genetics. And that was great. I had some fun times snorkeling and diving and the Florida Keys, where my master's work was focused. And then after that, I kind of wanted to understand how science informs policy and management of our natural resources. So I applied for a position at the EPA. It was technically a fellowship. I wasn't technically an employee of the EPA, but I was working with EPA team members to study coastal water quality. And that was a really fun opportunity. I got to see how a federal agency interacts with Congress and the White House um, in kind of developing these plans and budgets to protect our natural resources. So that was really interesting, the kind of the drama on Capitol Hill and how we interfaced with um, policymakers and leader leadership. It was very interesting to say the least. And yeah, that that is how I spent my kind of gap years between undergrad and my PhD. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. What kind of challenges did you have when, you know, working with those legislators and stuff? Did you see that, you know, they were more in favor of these environmental policies or were they kind of trying to not go forward with those kinds of things? Yeah, so um, being at the EPA, we were at least, we had some distance from the legislators. They were the ones who had to pass and appropriate our budgets and decide how much exactly our programs, um, how much funding our programs received. And I think even no matter who is in charge in the White House, I think Congress in general is pretty supportive of the EPA. Um, there's a lot of labs kind of based across the nation. So a lot of people employed uh, across the nation by the EPA. So in that sense, it's favorable. And I think the work we do, a lot of times it was taken for granted um, just because if you're used to seeing relatively clean water, drinking clean water, recreating in clean water, then you don't really think about the role of these kind of regulatory agencies. So I think the agency is taken for granted, but um, Congress thought it was important enough to fun pretty well every year, kind of regardless of who is in charge in the White House. Yeah, you bring about a really good point. I feel like a lot of consumers, I mean, even sometimes myself, we 
kind of forget, you know, that there is all this work that is going into making cleaner water. And there are, you know, all these scientists behind the scenes that are, you know, doing what you were doing, which is trying to help the water be cleaner and putting in that work. And we definitely do take it for granted. So that's a very enlightening thing to bring about because we really do take a lot of these kinds of things for granted. Like even just thinking about COVID, you know, all those scientists that were in the lab, you know, going over test results and doing research. And we kind of took for granted that we got a vaccine as soon as we did. Sure. Yeah. When you were working in the field, did you have any challenges for being a woman in STEM? Or did you see that maybe it was a more masculine dominated field? So it's interesting. I think in the marine sciences, if anything, the number of kind of majors and PhDs even might be more uh, female dominated now, but there is kind of an attrition of female scientists um, throughout their career track. So there are definitely still, I believe, more kind of like tenured professors, more senior professors tend to be male dominated. And that's part of that's just historical, but there are a lot of kind of um, stops along the way to becoming an academic scientist where a lot of female scientists drop out. And it's, I mean, some of it could definitely be attributed to harassment or lack of mentorship in the field, but there is kind of a lot of implicit bias too that I've read about that women scientists face. For example, if you're having a family that can kind of interfere with certain networking and social events that you're expected to attend because you're busy dealing with childcare. And I think there's some like systematic bias, like female scientists tend to not be cited as often. And they also, yeah, they tend to not be cited as often and not funded as often by like big federal uh, grants as their male colleagues. I think that's very true. Like, especially the family one, like, I mean, even for myself, I'm looking to go into a PhD and with all the years it takes, it's almost like once you're out of it and you're done, the society kind of expects you to start, you know, having kids and stuff. And it's like, we're definitely getting to a point where women working is a lot more popular and it's a lot more accepted in society. But I still think there are, there's still a little bit of a gap in where, you know, it can be a challenge for women to work and to have a family because it's like, how do you balance that? And you take care of an entire family, but also take care of, you know, your own goals and dreams for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, I think we've come a long way. I think a lot of departments are for sure being like family friendly and kind of prioritizing hiring women, but also more diverse faculty in general. But yeah, at the end of the day, having a baby is like a very physical process. So right. um, that, that burden is generally on the woman. Yeah, for sure. So after your work up in, I think it was DC, when you came to Florida, kind of what went into your PhD application and entering this program and getting accepted into UF? Can you kind of walk me through that process? Yeah, that's a really good question because a lot of people that are not kind of within working within a lab might not know the intricacies of this process. So first I kind of reviewed and researched 
different potential advisors I was interested in working with. Um, so just reading their papers and the people that whose work got me most excited, I reached out to, you have to be pretty persistent and sometimes they don't respond, they're busy professors. But when you finally are able to casually email or Zoom or talk with potential advisors and they think you're a good fit, then I went ahead and applied I applied to multiple programs across the country. I was interested in working maybe in different systems like coral reefs or kelp on the West Coast, but ultimately settled on my favorite seagrass um, here in Florida because I happened to know Laura Reynolds, an early career um, scientist here in the soil and water sciences. And I've just had a really good working relationship with her in the past. And I've everyone has good things to say about her. She's a great scientist. So yeah, that's why I settled on Florida. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Dr. Reynolds is amazing. I mean, even just a couple of times I've met her, she was really, really nice and seemed like a wonderful person to work with. So I know you've been working on your Blue Carbon project. Will you kind of give us some information on that? Maybe kind of simplify it a little bit for those who maybe aren't as familiar with what that means. Sure. So part of why I love seagrasses so much is that they provide us a lot of services, such as improved water qualities. Uh, they kind of hold on to sediment or the soil and kind of prevent storm surges from being very severe on coastlines. So they kind of buffer coastlines. And they also provide us with this great service of storing carbon in their sediments or soils. And the reason that is a service to us, this kind of function of capturing and storing carbon is that if you have organic carbon captured and stored in the soil, it's no longer available to be kind of metabolized by microbes and then released as carbon dioxide back to the atmosphere, which most people know we already have kind of a carbon dioxide problem in the atmosphere, that uh, kind of this abundance of greenhouse gases is what's mainly leading to our climate change issues. So having these kind of extensive meadows that grow on coastlines all along, you know, most continents, except for Antarctica, you'll find seagrass. In most cases, it's a pretty good carbon capture system. So that's what I've been studying. Yeah, that's great. So most of your research has been in Crystal River and Cedar Key. Have you had any experience with seagrasses and other types of ecosystems? And were there any key differences that you were able to notice? Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to travel to a few Caribbean islands. I've worked in Florida Bay and now I'm working in Cedar Key. And there, there are some pretty big differences you notice right away in these kind of tropic or subtropical seagrass meadows in Bermuda and the Bahamas, the Bahamas especially, I remember on a remote island visiting these seagrass meadows that were just so extensive, the water was so clear, there's just very little human impact on this particular island in the Bahamas, and it contrasted a bit with more impacted kind of population-dense South Florida. So Florida Bay is also this extensive kind of almost a carpet of seagrass, but not quite as pristine. And then Cedar Key is more northern and more affected by river influence. And so 
whereas in these Caribbean meadows, I could see everything up in Cedar Key. The water is very, very cloudy and turbid, mostly from river input of like organic particles coming down the river from the land. And so doing my work in Cedar Key is quite a contrast because a lot of the times I can't even see the seagrass I'm working on. I have to do my work by feel. Well, yeah, definitely with the visibility aspect. I've seen that for myself just from the couple of times I've tagged along in Cedar Key, comparing that to my diving experience in the Caribbean. It's insane just how there's such a large difference, not only in the ecosystems, but definitely in the visibility. It definitely makes me wonder kind of like what they're doing versus what we're doing. I mean, the Caribbean is a commercialism tourism place, but definitely on a much smaller scale compared to the US. So I would assume they don't have as much problems with pollution and it's probably a lot easier to keep those environments healthier and cleaner. It can be. So part of it is just natural variability in kind of more tropical areas tends to be more uh, low nutrient conditions, whereas in more temperate kind of mid-latitude areas as you go up north tends to be a bit more nutrient loading maybe from rivers and land masses. So part of it's natural, but there we can definitely be doing, probably be doing better in Florida Bay to keep things cleaner. Right. Is your project that you're working on now, the Blue Carbon Project, is that going to have any suggestions for what we can do to kind of help those ecosystems continue to flourish and grow? So for me, by studying what makes a seagrass meadow a good kind of carbon store or carbon container, if you can think of it that way. I'm helping managers and policymakers know which meadows, which types of species maybe um, will store more carbon. So that can help them identify which meadows to kind of preserve and prioritize for conservation. But it also helps us understand these general patterns in carbon storage in seagrass meadows, which will be useful when carbon offset credit accounting becomes more popular. It's not a widespread program yet, but in some states like Virginia, seagrass meadows can be used as carbon offset credits where a polluter, maybe like an airline that has airplanes flying and trailing a bunch of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases out into the atmosphere, they can purchase kind of a part of a seagrass meadow that stores a certain amount of carbon and that helps them offset their emissions. So knowing where you store the most carbon will be really useful for kind of evaluating pricing seagrass meadows in that context. That's really awesome. I feel like it's kind of all coming full circle with your work with the EPA and everything. You're giving back to that kind of policy background in a way. Have you had any like major breakthroughs so far? Anything that's really stuck out to you? So in my work, Nothing too major, but uh, we are finding that in Cedar Key, at least, the more stable meadows tend to store more carbon. And by stable, I just mean meadows that tend to have consistent cover over time. So we use long-term monitoring data to track which meadows had kind of consistent levels of seagrass cover over time and compared the amount of carbon stored in those meadows to meadows that had really variable levels of cover, sometimes 
one year the cover might be completely gone and then come back the next year, but drop to low levels again. And those did not store a lot of carbon. So keeping and sustaining these kind of stable, healthy meadows is probably very important for carbon storage because you can't store as much carbon in those kind of variable, inconsistent meadows. Do you hope to see this project continue for the next couple of years? Or like, is it something you want to keep going long term? Or do you think you'll have enough data once you've finished everything up? I think my work within Cedar Key is done. And we've shown that stable meadows are important for storing carbon in Cedar Key. And of course, I could ask this question in different places and different regions. So that's one way I could continue this work. But yeah, I do hope to publish these findings soon and continue working on other projects where I'm looking at an ecosystem kind of disservice of seagrass meadows, including greenhouse gas emissions in these meadows. Okay. Are you excited to publish this? I'm sure after a while you're like ready to get it out there. Yeah, ready to be done with it. And also it is exciting because not too many carbon storage meadows or carbon storage studies look at different kind of species composition in meadows and they typically do it at broader spatial scales. So I'm excited to kind of add this new information to the field. Yeah, I think you'll definitely bring a lot of great information to the table. After this project is done, do you have anything left for your PhD right now? I'm not super familiar how everything with the dissertation works and stuff. So if you give a little clarity on that, that'd be great. Yeah, so the carbon storage work is just one chapter and varies, but PhD dissertations usually include at least a few chapters. So I have a chapter on greenhouse gas emissions, maybe a chapter on nitrogen cycling, another service of seagrass meadows, and hopefully that's it. (laughs) And I get out of here on um, a good timeline. That's awesome. You're about four years in and then you're five. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What's this experience been like, you know, I guess emotionally for you? Has this been really hard being in this program for so long and kind of like trying to see that end in sight? Yeah, I mean, five years sounds like a long time, but it goes by really fast. So it's, it's been very challenging. I've had some like field and lab catastrophes that have probably brought me to tears. But in the end, it's really worth it because I'm getting to do something I really enjoy. I'm really passionate about. I get to be my own boss and lead my project. And I get to use my creativity. And yeah, it's just a lot of fun. You get to be your own boss with your own project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I get to be independent, doing something I really enjoy while getting to use my creative side and designing these projects. Yeah, honestly, that sounds just like the best of both worlds. Like you get to you know, do this really amazing work that's definitely going to make a large impact. But you're also, you know, you're getting to like, you're getting to head all of it, which I think is definitely empowering, especially like just being like in STEM and knowing that you're the boss right now. I think that's really awesome. And you're definitely doing an amazing job. Oh, thanks. So I guess just to kind of finish things up, 
Are there any big takeaways that you've had from this experience that you think would be good to share with anybody out there that's maybe interested in graduate programs or interested in, you know, becoming a scientist? Just to do your research. So whether it's the program, the location, or the professor you want to work with, just make sure you read up on their work, you read up on aspects of the program, such as you have to pay student fees. That may not sound that important, but the cost of living can be a quite a burden for graduate students who are generally not allowed to work outside of the university. So, you know, you have to cover your expenses. And if you have multiple options, kind of maybe picking part of the decision to pick your program might have to do with affordability. So yeah, just do your homework and make sure you know what you're getting into and definitely talk to talk to graduate students because they can tell you, give you an honest perspective on what it's like to be a grad student these days. Well, that's really great advice. You're definitely my favorite grad student to talk to. So I'm very lucky to have you as a resource. Oh, sure. Yeah. Anytime. Pleasure to just have you talk about your background and your research. I'm sure that it's going to be very useful for a lot of our listeners out there. And it's definitely been useful for me. I think I've definitely learned a lot more about kind of what it is that you're doing and everything that goes into it. So thank you so much for coming on and taking the time out of your day to share this with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Ashley. Thank you for listening to the AI in Action series on the Streaming Science Podcast. Make sure to follow and reach out to us on Facebook at Streaming Science, Twitter at Streaming Sci, and Instagram at Students Streaming Science. I'm your host, Ashley Jansen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the links in the show notes.